listening to KBOO Portland. Show your support for KBOO programming by picking up the special limited edition KBOO Keeping It Real throwback t-shirt. Like KBOO, this nostalgic design never goes out of style. Get yours now at kboo.fm slash realshirt. That's R-E-E-L shirt. And thank you for supporting KBOO listener-sponsored community radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender, justice, and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, we'll examine President Biden's budget plan, which offers significant increases to military and police spending with little emphasis on social spending, economic justice, or combating climate change. Lindsay Koshgarian of the National Priorities Project will analyze the budget. Then Katie Goldstein of the Center for Popular Democracy joins us to explore a new report offering an innovative solution to homelessness. The report Social Housing for All outlines what organizers are calling a vision for thriving communities, rent or power and racial justice. Finally, Professor Darnell Hunt of UCLA will share his findings from the latest Hollywood diversity report on film and how while there is greater diversity in front of the camera, directors and writers remain overwhelmingly white and male. That's coming up in just a moment. Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. President Joe Biden has announced a $5.8 trillion federal budget, whose key priorities are out of line with his campaign promises. His budget includes significant increases to military and police spending, in an attempt to center the progressive aspects of his budget, Biden announced in a statement that he was taking steps to overturn his predecessor's tax cuts on the rich. But there was no significant spending on social issues, economic justice, or combating climate change. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who heads the Senate Budget Committee, said firmly, quote, we do not need a massive increase in the defense budget. We turn now to Lindsay Korshkarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Welcome to the program, Lindsay. Thanks for having me, Salam Ali. 
So first, um, what do you make on the surface of Biden's budget? How does it, say, compare to previous Republican presidents and even Democratic presidents? Is this a fairly, you know, standard, typical budget of the kind that we expect presidents to take and, and not like what, you know, we might have expected from presidential candidate Joe Biden? Yes, Sonali. So for the most part, this is the type of budget release that we would have seen in the past um, from presidents of both parties. Um, it has an increasing military budget, uh, which you mentioned. Um, the military request in this budget is for $813 billion, um, which is higher than uh, at the height of the Vietnam War. It's higher than the height of the Cold War. Uh, it is higher than the last Trump budget. It is higher than the last Obama budget. So it's trending in the wrong direction. Um, and the other thing we look at is the balance of military to non-military spending in the annual budget. And that too is similar to what we've seen in the past. This budget puts 52% of what's called discretionary spending, the annual spending that Congress passes in their budget. It puts 52% of that into the military. And that means that everything else has to fit into the rest of the pie. And in fact, if you look at the military Homeland Security, veterans, and things associated with the military, it's actually two out of three discretionary dollars that are going to those things, leaving only one in three dollars for everything else. So the military and sort of broadly speaking, law enforcement, federal immigration enforcement seems to be his priority. It was interesting, I was looking at the New York Times um, analysis of this budget and the Times, you know, explained it as uh, this 10 percent rise that Biden is putting forward um, comes amid threats like Russia's invasion of Ukraine and concerns about China's ambition. I don't know if this is the New York Times trying to justify what Biden is doing or this is some reflection of Biden's reasoning itself. But we're technically not directly involved in the Ukraine war, although, of course, we're members of NATO. And it seems clear so far that the U.S. is, is not actually going to get into any kind of direct confrontation with Russia. Are these justifications really sensible? No, they're, they're not. Um, these justifications do come from the administration. Uh, they come from the Department of Defense and the highest military leaders. Uh, and this is something we've been hearing for years, is that we need higher military budgets to ad address the threats from China and Russia. But if we've learned anything from the Ukraine crisis, it's that decades and years and years of outspending every other country, we spend as much as the next 11 countries. We spend 12 times as much on our military as Russia does. If more military spending were the answer, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. And more military spending is not the answer to the situation we're in now. And as you, uh, as you suggested, there is a very small part of this budget that is actually directly about Ukraine. Um, the budget the budget that Congress just passed, um, less than 1% of the military spending in that was for Ukraine. And the Biden proposal um, doesn't actually call for specific funding for Ukraine. It just calls for general military funding. Now, people will say that that's because we need to be ready to defend NATO, um, but we've already been spending tens of billions of dollars. For years and years, we've had tens of thousands of troops stationed all over Europe at dozens of military installations. So this ramp up really isn't commensurate with what's happening right now. Uh, and most important, if the threat that we had in place before the Russian invasion of Ukraine wasn't enough to deter them, nothing that we're going to add at this point is going to be enough either. So let's um, take a step back and look at where the budget is. Um, you mentioned that the, there's been a budget that's been passed in, in the House. Um, you know, where, where are we that then, of course, the president puts out their budget blueprint. Ultimately, uh, the Senate and the House get to decide what passes and then the president can choose whether to sign it or not. So where are we in that process? So we're, we're in a very strange place in that process, actually. The way it's supposed to work is that the president is supposed to release uh, their budget request in February for the coming fiscal year, which begins in October. 
Um, so we're a little behind schedule on that, but not too much. So we're, we're pretty close to, to where that's supposed to be. But the budget is supposed to be passed for the fiscal year before it begins in October. Um, and what we've just seen is the budget that Congress just passed is for the fiscal year that we are now halfway through. Huh. Um, so that is why they ended up coming so close together, where you had Congress passing a negotiated budget, and then right on its heels, you had the Biden administration requesting their budget for the next fiscal oh, year. Um, so both of those things kind of happened at the same time this year, but the Biden request is for next fiscal year, and the budget that just passed is for the fiscal year we're in right now. Um, I will say there are a couple of things in the Biden budget, even though its general priorities are not what we would want to see. There are a couple of things that we should push for Congress to maintain. And uh, those are a reduction in the number of detention beds for immigration. Um, the, the Biden proposal reduces the number of detention beds from 34,000 to 25,000. So it's a significant reduction. And Congress is likely to undo that unless they feel appropriate pressure to, to maintain it. Um, the other thing is that the Biden administration has proposed a one-third cut in the number of F-35 jet fighters that they're asking for from the previous year and from many previous years. And that's significant because it's something that we've been pushing for for a long time. Um, and that is also something that Congress is likely to reverse unless they feel the pressure uh, to follow what the Pentagon is asking for and to follow what's rational and to actually maintain those cuts. Right, often we see these budgets uh, putting money to the toward the aspirations of lawmakers that are trying to prove to one another that they can outdo each other on security, defense issues, and being pro-military, even when it's not practical, even when the military itself says it doesn't necessarily need certain aspects. I, I want to go back to the, the New York Times article uh, about the White House budget, about uh, Biden's budget. The Times said the budget proposal put far less emphasis on the types of grand social, climate, and economic policies that Mr. Biden announced last year, but have since run into resistance from moderate Democrats. I take issue with the term moderate Democrats. I feel like they really should be seen as conservative Democrats, but but is this does this justification fly to you? Yes, yes. In fact, the fact that this budget looks so much like the requests that we've seen from past presidents is exactly because of that. It's because of all of the priorities that were in Build Back Better have essentially been stripped away. There are some very small pieces uh, in this budget proposal, but you don't see any of Biden's signature proposals for domestic spending, for childcare, for healthcare, for elder care, for climate. Uh, you don't see any significant signs of that in this budget. Um, and I actually saw, I'm not, I'm not remembering who to pro properly credit for this, but I actually saw um, someone call it the mansion budget. Um, because it does seem to be such a capitulation to um, remember there was one Democrat who stopped those priorities and then with all of the Republicans. So it's certainly more of a capitulation to Republicans than to, de to centrist Democrats where there was only one who actually held us back. What does the fact that Senator Bernie Sanders is, you know, heading heading the Senate Budget Committee, what is, how do you think that'll play out in what comes next? He's a chair of the Senate Budget Committee. This was what progressives were happy about, you know, as a consolation prize to not winning the nomination in the presidency. At least he gets to have this very important position. So what do you think will happen? So there are a couple of important things about that. One, of course, is just the megaphone that it gives him. Um, and it certainly does make, you know, makes him more of a go-to person for media to ask about these things. Um, and so that matters for, for public perception and for public understanding, uh, because the way that Senator Sanders will talk about this is not the same as the way that pre previous budget chairs would have talked about it. Um, so there's that. The other difference is that uh, Senator Sanders is in the room. A lot of the negotiations for these budgets happen behind the scenes. Um, and in the past, that has meant that whoever was in Democratic leadership would be in the room for those conversations, and anybody who wasn't in leadership would not. But now with Senator Sanders in this key position, he is much more uh, in the room for those discussions. He's part of the negotiations, uh, and he can't, and the progressive viewpoint that he represents can't just be shunted aside. 
So it is meaningful, but clearly without the power of the right number of senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives behind a budget that progressives would want to see, it's not enough to have one person in a key position. What about Biden's claim that he is starting to undo the mess, I believe it was the word he used, uh, left by Trump's tax cuts? And, uh, you know, is there any reversal of it, given where we are with skyrocketing inequality and how, particularly during the pandemic, billionaires just minted money? It is, you know, if ever there was a time to slap huge taxes on the wealthiest Americans, and we're talking about just a handful of people out of hundreds of millions, this would be the time. And does Biden, and these are very popular in the public, even among Republicans, does Biden's budget encompass enough of that? So you mentioned the, the wealth growth of billionaires during this pandemic, and just for some context, the amount of wealth that billionaire wealth has grown in this country during the pandemic would be enough to cover the entire Biden budget discretionary proposal that we're talking about. Just so the it's growth. Huge, it's <laughs> just the growth in their wealth would be enough to cover the entire thing. Um, so it's a huge amount of money. It's a huge resource. Um, and it is very significant that, um, that President Biden is proposing things like a billionaire wealth tax um, that would uh, that would start to reverse some of that and start to reverse the Trump tax cuts from 2017 that were so damaging. Um, so that is very meaningful and it is a big win uh, for movements who've been pushing for that for a long time. Um, but, you know, but on the other side, there's the spending side. And unfortunately, what the Biden budget is doing is it's moving back toward deficit reduction instead of toward putting more resources where we need them. Um, and, you know, there are multiple ways to, to find those resources. One, of course, is raising taxes on billionaires and corporations, which this budget is doing some of, and that's a very good thing. Another thing is to reallocate some of the funding that we have, uh, which this budget is not doing, and which is what we need to see is funding being drawn down for the military, drawn down for um, ICE and the Customs and Border Protection, that the agencies that were responsible for family separation and uh, the detention of immigrants, we need to see those funds being reallocated to where we really need them. Um, because the truth is that they are not working to keep us safe where they are now. Um, and we, we need to reallocate them into things like healthcare and job uh, creation and education and all of the things that we all know we need. So the next few weeks, uh, Lindsay, I imagine, are, are going to be critical in terms of seeing the debates shape up in Congress around budget priorities. This would be the time for those people who were heartened by Biden's uh, progressive economic platform when he was a candidate to speak up and say, keep your promises, right? Yes, yes. This is it, from, from starting right now until at least the fall. Um, we need sustained pressure on members of Congress to push the budget in a more progressive direction. Um, and like I said, to push it in a more progressive direction from where the Biden request is, but also to maintain those key things that are actually good in the Biden budget um, that Congress would be very likely to reverse if, uh, if we don't put enough um, pressure on them to, to maintain those better decisions. I'm wondering if you have any comments on, on, the, on the tactics here. When the president starts out with a budget that he thinks will please Joe Manchin, he's not using his bully pulpit, right? Instead, he could put forth a budget in line with his stated ideals and force Manchin to say no, no, no. I think, I think there have been definite mistakes in the approach to this. I think clearly some more public awareness of what this budget was or what the Build Back Better package was and what was in it um, before the negotiations got serious with Senator Manchin would have been much more helpful so that it would be clear that the public was behind that package, um, which was the case, but it just, people didn't know enough about it. They weren't passionate enough about it um, to create the kind of pressure that would have been needed. So yes, it would have been a very good idea for the Biden administration to have gone out and sold this very hard to the public um, beforehand. And it's not too late for them to do that now. There's another shot at passing a lot of those priorities, um, even apart from this Biden budget request that came out this week. 
um, there's another chance to pass a lot of those priorities separately through the same reconciliation process that we've heard about last year. Uh, and the, the key, of course, is to, uh, to getting Senator Manchin on board. And that has to be a careful mix of negotiation with him, but also of clear public pressure that there will be consequences if he doesn't uh, do what his constituents want. Lindsay, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. What's a good website for people to find out about your work? Our website is www.nationalpriorities.org. And we'll post a link to that from our website. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. My guest has been Lindsay Koshgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As inflation continues to drive up the price of goods and increased gas prices strain the wallets of Americans, wages, especially in the low-wage sectors, remain appallingly low. One of the predictable outcomes of this grim scenario is increased homelessness. Yet instead of investing in affordable housing and low-cost rentals, cities are seeing a sharp rise in luxury housing and rentals. Now, the Center for Popular Democracy, along with a number of other social justice organizations, has released a new report demanding what they call social housing for all. The report outlines a vision for thriving communities, renter power, and racial justice. It comes just as Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar reintroduced her Homes for All Act. Joining me now is Katie Goldstein. She's the Director of Housing Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Welcome to the program, Katie. Thanks for having me. So first, let's talk about the problem that we're facing, obviously, with the pandemic and mass unemployment, which apparently now is uh, going back um, to, to rising employment. We saw, I imagine, pretty significant increases in homelessness. So can you give us a big picture view of, of the problem of homelessness today? Absolutely. Um, and today we have over 500,000 people that are homeless across the country and every person who is homeless is a policy failure. And the reason that we have this crisis is because of the corporate control over our housing system. For-profit investors and for-profit landlords are at the root of our country's affordability crisis. And this is directly as a result of government policy that has led to speculative behavior skyrocketing. And part of what we're trying to change is the corporate stranglehold over all parts of our housing system. So I want to just hone in that on that just a touch. Um, how exactly has our federal government in, in worsened this problem? One of the issues that you point out in your report I was quite surprised by was that um, the Federal Housing Authority sold um, public housing and low-cost housing to big investors who are now basically turning this into a business, rising, increasing rents at will. I was shocked to see this. Absolutely. It really is a result of directly government policy. And this is since the 1980s, government deregulation of banking and Wall Street. It unleashed predatory subprime lending, which we saw in our communities, which really drew the foreclosure, which caused the foreclosure crisis. Right. And let me actually correct myself. I said they sold public housing. I should have said foreclosed homes is what they sold. Yes. Yes. Foreclosure crisis um, that more than half black and brown wealth. And then the Federal Housing Administration sold foreclosed properties at discount prices to the largest corporate landlords instead of to the residents and nonprofit developers. 
And so we really see federal policy as having been the cause of real estate speculation and corporate control. And then today we're seeing ongoing um, subsidies from the government that um, essentially help housing for the wealthy, not the poorest, right? The ones who need it the most aren't getting as many subsidies. So explain that. It's I understand it's basically through like tax breaks. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is something that is absolutely created by real estate corporations and the real estate industry. Um, but what we've seen is that the people that are getting the most housing subsidies are actually wealthy homeowners and not the people that need it the most, which are low income renters that are struggling in the housing market. So we have this huge need for housing for vast numbers of Americans, um, hundreds of thousands of Americans that are homeless or probably just struggling to make rent. Uh, but we do have a public housing system in the United States. Why is that not adequate to meet the need? So, so uh, public housing um, has been underfunded for decades, um, even though it has been the primary source of housing for low-income people. And because of the disinvestment, many much of the housing that's there um, is actually unsafe for tenants to be able to live in and is not dignified housing. So what we're calling for is a mass social housing program that will not only repair the current public housing that exists, but actually create millions of new units for people that actually need it. Let's talk about that. That's the heart of your report. This term social housing is not something that uh, we have heard very much of. What is social housing? Yes, so we define social housing as a public option for housing that is permanently affordable, protected from the private market, and publicly owned or under democratic community control. And so we define it in those particular ways because we think that what's important is for there to be an alternative to the corporate and for-profit system of housing. And what we did in this report is look at other models around the world of where social housing programs that have been sponsored both by the government and by nonprofit owners has actually led to reducing mass homelessness. And you point out that Finland is a good model. And I want to get to that um, very shortly, because, of course, a, a very important aspect of understanding how to create social policy is seeing if someone else has done it somewhere else and whether or not it's a good model. But when we think about social housing in the United States, um, do we talk, are you talking primarily about the government buying up houses and keeping rents controlled. And of course, because it's a government, there's no profit motive um, maintaining those homes, et cetera, so that they're available for people who need to, to be able to rent low-cost housing? Absolutely. Um, we think it's really about actually the government making the mass investment that's necessary and really shifting the role that it currently has in our housing market, which has mostly been to enable private, for-profit, corporate developers to be able to make as much profit as possible. And what we're talking about is actually decommodifying housing. How do we make it so housing is for people and not for profit? And that means the government playing a much larger role in partnering also um, with nonprofit owners and community organizations, but really centering democratic control and permanent affordability as part of what the housing is that we need to create. So social housing can be public housing, but it can also yes, be absolutely. things right. So it can also be things like community land trusts, which have gotten increasingly popular in recent years. I'm wondering if you can just briefly explain the various types of social housing. It doesn't have to be owned by the government, right? It can be, as you mentioned, like a nonprofit organization um, that that relies on, say, foundational money to to own housing that can be deemed social housing. Absolutely, and there are many models that could exist of social housing that could fall under this definition, but what we're really saying is that for-profit developers have cannot and have not actually met the crisis at scale. So what we're talking about is there being a mass social housing program that can meet the needs of our housing crisis and create these alternative forms of ownership and also alternative forms of people having housing. And some of the things that we really call for in this report 
is that we really prioritize the lowest income residents and communities of color that are most at risk in the housing market and need the most quality, affordable, and safe housing for them to live with dignity. What are some of the main requirements for housing to be considered social? Um, obviously, I'm the, the most direct one which we've been discussing is that it shouldn't be owned by a for-profit corporation seeking to, to use housing as a way to make money. But other than that, you know, housing, maintaining housing is, is, is a big issue. Um, re- people who rent out housing are responsible for upkeep, accessibility, et cetera. So are there certain principles for social housing that should be met? Absolutely. And so one of the three core principles that we're calling for around social housing is that there's permanent affordability, it's, there's protection from the private market, and it can be publicly owned or under democratic community control. So some of the pieces around that is we want to make sure that it's permanently de- decommodified. So there's no way that it could be sold uh, to a for-profit investor. We also really believe that it needs to be socially financed, produced, and maintained, um, and financed through public funds. Often, affordable housing um, really our financing comes at the end of the process in which you're constructing and maintaining affordable housing. And we're talking about public investment the whole way through. Um, And a really critical piece around this also is under democratic community control. So making sure that tenants have a voice in the way that the housing um, is being governed. So let's talk about Finland. Um, This is a country that apparently has put forward this and and, and engaged in in a very systematic way to to have a social housing policy. What has Finland done and how uh, is it a model for what the U.S. could do? Absolutely. So we were really excited to look at Finland because it's the only country in the European Union where homelessness is decreasing, which is a core principle of what we're trying to accomplish. And it's about part of the policies is that they have a housing first policy for unhoused people, which gives people an apartment and counseling as soon as they need them with no preconditions. Um, And it also has a strong social housing program that means that tenants are actually able to move in to begin with. And part of that is that most land is actually owned by the municipal government. And social housing units are about 16% of the stock in Finland. And so this is really critical to think about how costs are kept down, is that the government is actually playing a significant role in the market and also making sure that housing is accessible to all that need them. They also partner when there is um, any kind of housing that's not a part of social housing, there are strong anti-eviction and rent controls, which really go hand in hand with social housing as a way of trying to end the corporate control over our housing system. So let's talk about what uh, Representative Ilhan Omar in her Homes for All Act is asking for. Um, She's a progressive, so I imagine that her values are relatively in line with those of social justice activists like yourself. What does her Homes for All Act include and does it have or encompass any principles from your social housing uh, vision laid out in the report? Absolutely. We're incredibly excited to have partnered with Representative Omar on reintroducing the Homes for All Act. And it does a couple of really critical things that we think put us on the path to mass social housing. So first, it repeals the Faircloth Amendment, um, which is an amendment that was put in place in the 1990s to make it so there could be no new public housing that's constructed. It can only be privately owned housing. And so we think that that's incredibly critical. And then we're looking at 800 billion over the course of the next 10 years to build 9.5 million new units of public housing and also 200 billion to help local communities with nonprofit partnership to build 2.5 million new permanently affordable socially housed units. And there's also another piece of it that is really critical is creating community anti-displacement funds that will be able to fund efforts such as eviction protections and other kind of community outreach that's incredibly important to actually make these programs a reality and make sure they're getting to the folks that need them. 
So if this sort of uh, act were to, or some version of it were to pass our uh, or the House and the Senate, which of course, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine given the, the, the gridlock, if you will, in Congress. But if it were to make it through, be signed into law by President Biden, would it go pretty far toward Finland's model of social housing? Um, you know, I guess presumably a lot farther than we are now. Absolutely. And we think that it's really critical for the federal government to be able to invest its mass resources to be able to produce social housing. So we think that that's absolutely the right role for it. There are also campaigns for social housing that exist in California and also in New York. Um, so state-based campaigns where they're calling for social housing to be passed by their state legislatures. But really, the funding needs to come from the federal government, and we need to make sure that the federal government is prioritizing this housing crisis and saying no to corporate control of housing and saying that it's time that everybody should be able to have a home that needs one. Where can people find out more about the report, you know, if they want to um, look at this idea? Because solutions aren't always... Uh, you know, we, we don't see enough s such sort of solutions, realistic and visionary solutions from social justice spaces. Um, so if people want to read the report themselves, maybe try to promote it in their local community, what can they do? Where can they find it? Um, they should absolutely look up renters-rising.org. Renters Rising is our national movement to take on corporate landlords, and we're organizing tenants across the country to actually transform the housing system and decommodify housing. You'll see the report there, but then there's ways for us to get involved with activities and be a part of this mass movement to transform the housing market. And we'll post a link to that from our website as well. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck to you. Thanks so much for having us. My guest is Katie Goldstein, Director of Housing Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. And we've been talking about a new report called Social Housing for All, a vision for thriving communities, renter power and racial justice. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Are You With Sonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Each year, the Hollywood Diversity Report tracks the progress made by the film and television industry on race and gender representations in front of and behind the camera. The latest report on film is just out. And in a landscape where streaming services are leading traditional theatrical releases, we see significant gains in on-screen representation. However, there is less progress on the demographics of directors and writers. My guest is Darnell Hunt, Dean of the Division of Social Sciences at UCLA, Professor of Sociology and African American Studies, and lead author on the past eight installments of the Annual Diversity Report, as well as, of course, this latest one. He's been a frequent guest on our program to talk about these reports. Welcome back, Darnell. Great to be here. So it's always a pleasure to speak with you, especially considering that every year we speak, there is, you know, if not fantastic yeah. progress, at least marginal progress. So let's talk about the places where there has been progress on diversity in film and remind our audience of what period this is covering and the fact that we're in this landscape where streaming services are leading. Yeah, so um, when our report comes out, uh, it typically looks at the, the year preceding. So the 2022 report uh, looks at the 2021 calendar year. We have to wait for the year to end, of course, to collect all the data so we have a comprehensive picture of what happened. 
So we're talking about um, 2021, which as you know, uh, was still kind of um, affected pretty significantly by the pandemic. Uh, not as much as 2020 when um, theaters were closed most of the year. Theaters actually slowly started to reopen in 2021. So the data that they'll be talking about today is based on 252 films um, that were released in 2021. 45.6% of those films, nearly half, were released uh, solely on streaming platforms, which is quite significant. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, only about 18% were released solely in theaters. And then the remainder were released a combination of uh, in theaters and through streaming. Some with a 45 day window, others simultaneously and so forth. So when we look at the way in which the demographics in front of this on screen have changed, how much, first of all, has have racial and gender dynamics changed in uh, lead uh, roles as well as overall cast diversity? And how much of those increases in diversity, you think, are related to the fact that streaming services now dominate? Well, um, so we've argued that streaming services have really hastened the process by which diversity has increased on screen. When we first started looking at um, leads, for example, uh, in Hollywood films um, for 2011, our first report came out in 2014 and we looked at two seasons because we wanted to catch up. We looked at 2011, 2012, um, only 10.5% of the leads uh, among the top Hollywood films in 2011 had people of color as in, in, that, in, the, in those positions. Fast forward to 2021, and fully 38.9% um, of the leads are people of color. So that's nearly quadruple uh, what we saw uh, in 2011. So that's significant progress over the years. Now, we've argued that some of that is related to uh, the fact that streaming played such a major role in 2020 and 21. And what we normally do is we look at the top Hollywood films ranked by global box office and we cut off at the 200th film. Uh, then we subtract out foreign language films that leaves us the, the films that we look at in any given year. Well, that methodology shifted in 2020 because of the pandemic. Not a lot of films were released in theaters, so we had to go to streaming. And the way we um, looked at streaming was we ranked the films by ratings because we also have access to ratings data. And we looked at a combination of the top films in box office along with those that were released via streaming platforms. And that's how we came up with the films we looked at in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, and in this report for 2021, uh, the second year. And what that means is we have a bigger mix of streaming films in our data set than we've ever had in the past. And those films tend to be more diverse. They tend to be smaller films. They tend not to be your tentpole films, although there were a few like Wonder Woman, for example, in 2020 that was released via streaming. Um, and what that's done is created opportunities for people of color, actors of color, directors of color, writers of color um, to essentially helm a film or lead a film um, and to be included in our data set when they wouldn't have been included before when we were only looking at the top theatrically released films. So some of this is sort of um, an artifact of the pandemic, I think. And the question is, and the reason why we titled our report a new post-pandemic normal question mark is we're wondering whether this will continue going forward once we're out of the pandemic. And we're arguing that we don't think we're gonna go back to what existed before the pandemic because streaming has proven itself as an important vehicle for distribution. Um, audiences of color flock to these films. And we can talk about that a little bit later in terms of uh, the ratings and the box office data. And, um, you know, people of color, you know, represent 42.7% of our population now. Um, we'll be majority minority in a decade or two. Uh, so Hollywood really can't go back to the way it was doing business before. And we think that this, what we found the last two years, um, is an indicator of what could be, the type of diversity we could have on a regular basis. Let's talk about the uh, way in which we've seen gains in front of the camera, but not as many behind the camera. What about directors and writers? These are key positions for film that determine how characters 
you know, function on screen, what they're, what motivates them. And we've had a situation for a long time where when we've had roles for people of color, they've often been written by white writers, so they've tended to be one-dimensional or caricatures or stereotypical. So what has changed on that front? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So one of the things we've been arguing, both for television and film, for several years is that you know, even as we've seen encouraging progress in front of the camera, we haven't seen as much behind the camera, most notably in the executive suites, which remain overwhelmingly white and male. Um, however, we have seen some progress among directors and writers. And, and again, there was a huge jump between 2019 and 2020, um, the first year of the pandemic, for the same reasons that I think we saw more diversity on screen. The fact that streaming films tended to be smaller films and more diverse, and so we saw more directors of color, more women directors, that type of thing, beginning in 2020. When we first started the study um, back in 2014, for the 2011 year, only 12.2% of the directors were people of color. Uh, in 2019, only 14.4%. So there was really only about a, a two percentage point increase over that eight year period between 2011 and 2019. All of a sudden in 2020, we had this big jump to 25.4% um, of the directors being people of color, almost double what we saw the year before. And that was almost assuredly um, the result of streaming films playing a bigger role in, in, in sort of Hollywood releases that year. Um, in 2021, or for 2020, 2021 in this current report, 30.2% um, 30 of the directors were people of color. So again, um, amazing increases since 2011 but not quite proportionate representation. They'd have to increase their share by another 12% or so to get to 42.7%, which is what people of color represented the overall population. So again, we've seen a lot of progress over the years, not as much as we've seen on screen. And I think the last two years are largely the result of the pandemic. And so the question mark in our subtitle is, well, when theaters are back online fully, maybe next year, maybe the year after, Will we continue to see the numbers we're seeing now or will streaming continue to play a major role and the types of films that made it into our data set the last two years will continue to boost the numbers for women and people of color? And that's a question mark. And that's something that we're gonna be looking at really closely over the next couple of years. How important is it for cast diversity to have uh, directors and writers of color? Uh, as in when you have a director who's a person of color, do they tend to pick or, you know, more diverse casts for their for their films overall. So one of the things that we found um, is that films that are directed by women and people of color um, tend to be more diverse overall. So that's something that we found several years in a row. It's pretty pretty clear. Uh, and unfortunately, the films that are directed by women and people of color also tend to have smaller budgets. Hmm. So that kind of supports the point I was making earlier about the last couple of years being largely impacted by the pandemic. And that's why we've seen these big jumps in um, diversity on screen, because smaller films with smaller budgets that are more likely to be directed by women and people of color are suddenly being considered because they're being released via streaming platforms. Um, films that probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been released in theaters, or if they were, they wouldn't have made the top 200. So because they're cheaper to make, uh, they were being funded. Yeah. But the irony, of course, is that they tend to do better than some of the other films that might have larger budgets that aren't very diverse at all. One of the consistent findings that we've seen over the 10 years of this report series is that the least diverse films, the least diverse films, films with casts that are less than 11% people of color, consistently do the worst. They're the poorest performers. And so you have to ask yourself, why is the industry making so many films like this? And when we started in um, 2014, those were the most um, numerous films. They were the plurality, the films that were less than 11% people of color. Fast forward to the present, films with majority minority cast are actually in the plurality. So we've seen a huge shift in overall cast diversity towards more of the top films being more diverse than what we saw when we first started doing the study. So, I mean, some of this is, I mean, I think that Hollywood has kind of gotten the memo. They, they, you know, we've been harping on this for years now that diversity sells. We haven't really gotten into that yet, but the data is pretty clear. I think the industry has finally gotten it. What they haven't done to the same extent 
is change the way they do business behind the camera. That is to say, the people in the executive suites who make decisions about what's going to be green lighted, what the budget's going to be, who's going to direct, that type of thing. We're still talking about white men there for the most part. The films that were streamed um, in, um, in 2021, um, if you look at the top 10 films um, ranked by ratings, uh, people of color or households of color were overrepresented for every one of those top 10 films. That is to say, the share of households of color was larger than their share of the overall households in the country for each of those top 10 films. So again, people of color are driving um, box office and ratings um, for films that were released in theaters and films that were released uh, via streaming. Darnell, I know that uh, the issue of diversity cells has been a very important theme from folks like yourself, from organizers for racial justice, because, you know, we have been told for years by movie makers that, oh, we don't have people of color in films because there's just not enough money in it and we have to, you know, we're a profit-based industry. And so the, the excuse for years had been that uh, white leads sell movies. That was proven wrong. It has been proven wrong. Now we're seeing more diverse casts and, and, and it's going to be really interesting to see whether this sustains itself or not. Because if Hollywood goes back to the way things were, then we know that it's not money that's really driving their decision-making, it's racism. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's no question that um, Hollywood is sort of um, has a pretty uh, notorious racist past. I mean, the original or the or some people would argue the first Hollywood film was Birth of a Nation, uh, which was all about glorifying the KKK and white supremacy and essentially um, demeaning and dehumanizing blacks. You know, they had whites playing blacks in blackface, and when they did have black actors, they belittled them. You know, showing how they weren't fit for you know, office when they, you know, after Reconstruction were part of Congress and so forth and so on. So there are all these negative stereotypes about African-Americans that sort of um, were popularized and mass communicated for the first time in this film that was seen by millions. Um, President Woodrow Wilson, for example, showed the film at the White House and described it as history written in lightning, you know, to dignitaries from other countries because it, for him, epitomized what America was, a, a racist, white supremacist uh, country, you know. So that was the beginning of Hollywood. And over the years, of course, white men have dominated the industry and slowly women and people of color have you know, found um, entry to different sectors of the industry, but it's never really become this sort of democratic um, representative space that, that represents what America is today. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there. and. Um, Hollywood is always sort of hidden behind this sort of argument about what audiences want to see. And um, it's all about making money. It's show business. Um, leads of color don't travel overseas because, you know, we make a lot of our money from the global market now and, and we can't afford to, to, to lose money by putting a black actor out front. Now, of course, we've debunked a lot of that in our study over the years. And if you think about it, um, the world's diversity around the globe looks a, more, a lot more like America's diversity than it does Europe. I mean, Europe is only about 18% of the world's population and about 21% of the world's GDP. What about the rest of the world and the rest of the, the money? So it's just basically an excuse. It's a fig leaf that the industry has been hiding behind to um, allow white men to continue to dominate things and to argue for you know why they're justified in doing that. And what we've been trying to do with this project over the last 10 years is to take on each of those myths and to deconstruct them with data to show how that's actually not the case. It's not the case domestically and it's not the case globally. So there's, uh, you know, hard facts like box office uh, ticket sales, but then there's the more subjective recognitions and your report covers accolades, the Oscars, the Academy Awards, and of course the latest uh, 2022 Academy Awards were just this past weekend, quite dramatic. You feel free to throw out any opinions you have on the drama that unfolded on screen. But what did the diversity report uh, find about how the Academy, that is the, the peers of those people working in the industry, recognize or not diverse filmmakers, diverse cast members and leads? Yeah. So uh, here, you're gonna have to bear with me. It's a little complicated in terms of the timing. So we release our report every year, the week before Oscars, because we're trying to ride the wave. People are talking about the industry and we wanna 
you know, kind of release our report right before the Oscars when everyone's talking about it so that it becomes part of the conversation. What that means is we don't know yet who's going to win the Oscars for that year. So our report always looks at the previous Oscar year. And so we're looking at the previous year in terms of films, 2021, but we're actually looking at Oscar winners from 2020, if you can follow me on that. So it's a little bit complicated. The Oscar winners from 2020 are for films made the year before that? Exactly. So we're not talking about the same year that we're talking about right. in the rest of the report. We're talking about Oscar winners. If you'll recall, in 2020, that was a breakthrough year for the Oscars. There were lots and lots of nominations for people of color in the acting categories and directing categories and a, a range of different categories. And sure enough, what we found in the report was that breakthrough year in nominations also led to a breakthrough year in awards. In fact, for the first time since we've been doing the study, um, uh, films that were directed by people of color won more Oscars than films that weren't directed by people of color. So that's pretty significant. Um, and that had never really happened before, certainly not since 2011, since we've been tracking this. Um, so that was significant. This year, um, you know, prior to the release of our report, we had another year of pretty decent, you know, nominations of people of color. You had two African-American men, for example, in the and the best, uh, the lead actor category, we had Denzel Washington and, um, and um, Will Smith. There we go. How can I forget Will Smith's name, given the drama at the Oscars, right? Um, so both of them were in the same category. I mean, that doesn't happen all that often. We had Anjanu um, Ellis in the um, uh, best supporting actress category. We had Jane Campion, um, uh, best director or woman. Uh, there were a number of different um, nominations that were diverse, people of color and or women that led to um, sort of the, the prospect of a, another good season in terms of award winners. Now, we haven't done the analysis yet uh, for, the, for this year's show because we have to look at all the films, all the nominees, and figure out what the odds were of winning in different categories. But um, it's safe to say that we've gone substantially past where we were during the Oscar So White years where there weren't any nominations at all for people of color in the major acting categories. And we rarely see nominations for people of color in the directing and the writing category. So um, by all accounts, the last couple of years have been much, much better than what we saw the last, you know, what, five or six years ago. Now, the Academy has been working overtime to try to diversify its membership because part of the problem was it was mostly older white men who dominated many of the sections that actually nominate and vote on award winners. And they did and, that because of the pressure from activists, right? Well, absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 from from reports well, yeah. like yours. Well, right, Oscar so white. I mean, that was that was the movement that really kind of lit a fire under the under the academy. And so, I, without that, I don't know that we'd be having this conversation today about the progress we've seen the last couple of years. And our report, of course, has also tracked sort of performance at the Oscars, and we've argued that the Oscars are important because um, you know, they kind of set the, the, the tone for the culture of the industry. You know, the whole idea of the Oscars is they're awarding excellence. They're awarding and celebrating the best that the industry has to offer. And if the industry is only recognizing white-directed, white-led, white-written films, then what does that say about everyone else and, and the quality of what they're producing? And whether or not the white men who sit in the executive suites when they're making decisions about the, what to green light whether they want to greenlight those films. Or even more pertinently, if, um, you know, what type of budget they want to give those films if they're not perceived to be Oscar-worthy films. So the whole tone and the, the standards by which the industry operates often flow from what's recognized at the Oscars. So the Oscars are really important. And we kind of made this point over the years, and that's one of the reasons why you need more inclusion um, among the people who are nominating and voting and ultimately the things that are nominated for and, 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 and awarded. Well, Darnell, I want to thank you so much, as always, for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you on. We'll post a link to the latest report, uh, the Hollywood Diversity Report on Film, from our website so our audience can read it themselves. Thanks so much. Thank you. My guest is Darnell Hunt. He's Dean of the Division of Social Sciences at UCLA, Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies and lead author for of the annual Hollywood Diversity Reports. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. 
Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatra. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on facebook.com slash ruwithsonali. That's the letters, ruwithsonali. And follow us on twitter.com slash ruwithsonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen. 